I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Sarah Santiles in conversation with Margaret Throsby, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you very much and welcome to all of you. And um, I'm really, really pleased to be here. Um, it's my first Byron Bay Writers Festival, so I've, I'm very, I feel very excited to be here. What a lovely place this is. It really is. And it sort of goes with reading and books and learning and all of that. Before we begin, I want to begin by acknowledging the uh, and paying respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the uh, Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation, and particularly also to Indigenous people in the audience today. Welcome and thank you for having us on your land. Sarah Centillus has been had been studying to become an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church. When she began writing the stories of two men differently affected by war, one was a conscientious objector during World War II, the other was an American soldier stationed at the notorious Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. In the process, Sarah um, left the church and effectively Christianity. Today, she's a writer, teacher, critical theorist, scholar of religion, and author of many books, the most recent being Draw Your Weapons, which is a book that really penetrated to me in a way that I hadn't expected. It is, and I wrote down here, a meditation. It's a word that I absolutely have come to hate. <laughs> it's, an, it's a sort of a contemplation or a rumination, it's a lot of Asians, <laughs> on art and war and God. Sarah herself describes this book as a song for the dead for all the bodies that don't get grieved, meaning the people killed in war. So, Sarah, it's wonderful to have you sitting on the stage with us today. And I thought that we'd start with the two pictures that so struck you. Can we start about with the one of the man with the violin? What was it? Yes, thank you. And thank you, Margaret, for that beautiful introduction. And thank you all for having me in your town. This place is amazing, and I'm going to move here. <laughs> I love it, and I'm so grateful to be here. I, When I first saw the beach, I cried. It just is amazing. Um, so it was in 2006 that I first saw the picture of this man named Howard Scott, and I was a doctoral student at the time at Harvard, and I was I had left um, my program to write elsewhere because the program was um, oppressive in a variety of ways, and I was back to take, I think I was taking exams or defending my prospectus, and I saw this image. I was staying with a friend, and she said, you have to look at this picture in the Boston Globe, and I looked, and it was this man. Um, he was in his 80s, and he was holding a violin, and I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know his name. I didn't know why he was holding the violin, and everything in my body said, you have to meet this person. You have to write a book about this man. And then I read more about him and realized he had been a conscientious objector during World War II, and his roommate in college was Japanese-American, and so to protest the internment of Japanese-Americans uh, during World War II, he walked out of the civilian public service camp where he'd been stationed, and he was put in prison. And while in prison, he decided he wanted to build a violin. And his wife... Um, she was allowed to write him a couple letters a week, and she would type up in tiny 
type smashed onto the page the directions for how to build a violin. And he never finished it. Um, he was released from prison before he finished it. And his grandson finished it for his, um, in his mid-80s birthday and gifted him the violin. And that was the picture that I saw. There are thousands and millions of pictures of men with violins. <laughs> you, you say something in you. Have you ever sort of really analyzed that? What was it about that picture? I think um, in some ways it was after I had seen the Abu Ghraib torture photographs. So it was in 2006. We had re-elected Bush. I was feeling despair that there was anything an individual could do that might make a difference in the world, that there was no... I, it felt like... Um, there was no way to stop this tremendous violence that was ongoing, no matter how many people marched, no matter how much information came out. Um, and I think I could feel, it sounds a little bit weird, but I feel like I could feel in that photograph his resistance and the joy of his resistance. Did you know anything about him when your friend showed you the picture? Nothing until I read the newspaper. Until Sorry. I read the newspaper. Um, you went. You actually went to meet the man. I did. <laughs> what, you phoned him up and said, I, I did. want to come I and phoned him up. <laughs> I called information, which I didn't know you could still do that. You know, I dialed 411 in the United States and asked for Howard Scott and Lacey Washington, and they gave me his number. And I called, and he answered the phone, and I said, i just seen this photograph. I want to write about you. And he said, sure. And I could... He was um, beginning to lose his mind. He had some dementia, and I could tell he was, he, I, he didn't know exactly what I was asking. Um, so I wrote him a long letter and explained who I was and that I was a writer, and um, I sent him the letter, and I never heard from him. And I called and called, and I was worried. Nobody answered the phone again. I was worried he'd died. And months later, I got a phone call from his daughter, a woman named Kayleen Pritchard, and she said she'd been going through her parents' things and she'd found my letter. And her mother had died um, two years before and she was going through all the letters they'd written to each other. And she said to the universe, I need someone to write a book about this. And she said, that was May 27th and your letter is dated May 27th. You must come see us. So I did. It was pretty amazing. It's spooky. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's the, that, those sort of coincidences are... You can't ignore them, really, can you? No, you can't. Ignore them at your own peril. <laughs> what did you find when you went? I mean, how hard was it to get to him? Where did he live and how did you find him? Um, I've, well, I flew. I was living in Idaho at the time where I live now, and I, so it was a pretty easy flight. I flew to Washington to Seattle and took a ferry, and Kayleen met me, and we'd never... I stayed in their house, this complete stranger, um, and we went right to see him. He was staying at an assisted living facility, and he is the most beautiful human. He's died, um, but if you met him, you would just fall in love with him. He's incredible. And they weren't treating him right. They had moved the dining room from like the third floor to the basement, and he couldn't find it, and they were blaming him for things like that. Um, but we had lunch together, and he always carried a harmonica in his pocket, and he played his harmonica, and we could talk about what I was going to do. And he was, he had this. The things that mattered most to him, which were his family, his marriage to his wife, Ruane, and pacifism, he just talked about those things over and over. It was like this light could pierce through whatever was happening in his brain. When you say that he'd shared in college a room, um, was that what triggered his pacifism, that he was friends with this Japanese man and the Jap Jap Japanese were our enemy in the war? He was. Um, his pacifism was two-part. One, he was against conscription. 
he was against a forced draft. He said if wars were moral, you wouldn't need to force people to fight them. They would volunteer. And he and Ruain were engaged in activism against conscription. Um, and then the second was when his roommate, Gordon Hirabayashi, who actually took his case all the way to the Supreme Court and ended up winning about internment of Japanese. When, he was in, when his family was interned, he said, I can't support this war effort in any way. And that was when he was put in prison. So the story behind the violin part of this story is that he, while he was in prison, decided to build a violin and Ruane helped him with her letters in <laughs> instruction manuals on how to build a violin. Mm -hmm. The war ended, or he was, he was released, it goes in the back of the cupboard. How long did it lie in the back of the cupboard before the grandson arranged for it to be made? Um, 60 years, I think. 60 right. years. Is that the right math? And there's a beautiful story around that, isn't it? The, the grandson. Just quickly tell us that. Yes, his name is Noel, and he was a uh, furniture maker. So he was in a furniture making school in Boston, and he was doing work to pay tuition, and working with this woman named Jess. And um, she wanted some side tables made, and so she was trying to negotiate, bargain with him to get the side tables made. And she was a violin maker, so she just joked. She said, if you happen to know pieces of violin that are lying around that need help, <laughs> I'd be happy to complete them for and you. He and happened he to said, know there was Actually, a violin. Yeah. 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 Really? And so um, he's married to a Japanese-American woman, and um, her mother actually brought the pieces of the violin all the way across the country, and um, Jess completed them. And then did Howard see it played? He, he did. Jess is also plays the violin, so she um, she played it, and he said it felt like the music of angels. And um, the picture that I saw is him holding it right after it's been gifted to him, and it's just this most luminous image. From the luminous image of the man with the violin making the sound of angels, mm -hmm. we go to Abu Ghraib. That picture, which picture? Because the ones that I remember from Abu Ghraib is the... American female soldier with her mm -hmm. thumbs up with mm -hmm. the guy's hooded. Lindy England. Tell me yeah. about that. that, that picture. What was the picture you saw? That I saw. I saw the man on the box, the hooded man on the box who's standing on the box. It has uh, He has a hood over his head and he has a um, blanket that he's wearing and there's electrical wires attached to him. And um, I saw it, I don't remember where I saw it, but I remember seeing it and knowing um, something has been torn in the world that must be repaired. And uh, people, commentators of all kind, not religious commentators, were calling the image a crucifixion image. And I wanted to understand, I was a doctoral student in theology and I'd been trained as to be an Episcopal priest. I wanted to understand what it meant to impose that narrative about salvific suffering, salvific violence onto the body of a tortured Muslim man. What was that doing? Was it, did it help people see that torture was wrong or did it um, make us think this is what you do to the body of others to keep people safe, which is a version of atonement theology? Can we talk a bit more about that, about the, the image of the crucifixion, which is so etched into our minds, really, isn't it? And it's everywhere. It's in art, it's in pop art, it's on crucifixes around people's necks, it's in people's living rooms, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. The picture of Christ suffering and dying on the cross. Um, I think that theology or Christianity teaches us, and pardon my, my knowledge of Christianity is a little scanty, but um, it teaches us that this act of crucifying Jesus on the cross was 
in order that we may all have eternal life. I, I, I never got that. I never quite <laughs> understood what that ac actually means because did that mean Christ gets eternal life too or what? Yeah. <laughs> I, when I, was, I grew up Catholic and when I was a little kid, I didn't understand it either. I was about six or seven and I told my father that I had a question for the priest and he was like, okay. So I went up to the priest and I said, um, in Catholicism, is suicide a sin? And he said, yes. I said, did Jesus go willingly to his death? And he said, yes. I said, did Jesus commit suicide? And he was like, oh, I, don't, I don't think this is the right place for you. Um, but yeah, there's that story. I, I think that's exactly what I was reacting to. Is that, What does it mean to turn this specific suffering of these individual people who are being tortured by Americans into a symbolic story about redemptive suffering where the violence done against Jesus does something good for the rest of us. Did, was this a sort of um, a narrative that grew up around the Abu Ghraib pictures from up above to justify the war? Do you think? Well, if you read the, I've, I've, if if you read just like I do the torture memos, <laughs> um, when I looked at the memos that were. Uh, created by the Bush administration lawyers to try to justify what they were doing, which are a horrific set of um, legal documents. The tone is just um, terrible. Uh, when I read those, they were using a version of atonement theology, like you hurt one person to save many. It's okay if you hurt one person to save many. And it's the justification for torture, the ticking time bomb, like if you know a person who knows where a bomb is that's going to kill lots of people, of course you'd torture them so you could save other people. What's the argument to counter to that? Um, nobody tells the truth when they're tortured. Okay. Because it kind of has a, a mad logic about it, doesn't it? Does it? It doesn't have any logic, but it feels like it does, which is why it's an effective <laughs> um, way of thinking. I was astonished to find that as recently as this year, Dick Cheney is still is still justifying um, torture with using expressions. They're kind of euphemisms, I, I, uh, like enhanced interrogation mm -hmm. techniques, yes. which involves waterboarding and mm -hmm. deprivation of sleep and electric shocks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I suppose when authorities sit around their big table in the whatever the room they sit in the White House to decide these things and say enhanced interrogation techniques, it dulls the sensitivity somehow, mm -hmm. doesn't it? And our media mimicked those words. They didn't call it torture either, which was part of the problem. They called it enhanced interrogation as well. Do they still? No, they sometimes use the word torture now. Do they? Yes. Gosh. Or they'll say so-called enhanced interrogation. <laughs> Over time, war photography has, well, photography itself has, has often contained very powerful messages and war photography, photography particularly. I'm thinking of Kim Fook, the little girl that she was, nine-year-old, running down the street in Vietnam with no clothes because they'd all been burned off her, mm. um, who I subsequently interviewed not that many years ago. Um, did that? Do you think that changed the course of the Vietnam War? That image in particular? Yeah. I do think it did. I think it turned um, opinion toward the war. And do you think Abu Ghraib pictures turned the course of the Iraq War? No, I do not think they did. Why did the one and not the other, do you think? Um, because I, the one is horrifying enough of a little girl screaming as she runs down the road, but the other one is just as horrifying, surely. Is it the time that's elapsed between them or 
are we different now from what we were in 60s, 70s? I'm not sure. I mean, it feels like we don't have... Uh, I, I think back to the beginning of those wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, and how more people marched against those wars than have ever marched before worldwide, and it did nothing. So I think that there is a sense that um, outrage results in no action. And so there was tremendous outrage about those photographs, but our public outrage didn't have an impact on um, policy. The same Does the same idea or feeling underpin your idea that pacifism, that calling yourself a pacifist is not enough? It does. I mean, I, I started thinking calling myself a pacifist wasn't enough um, because I felt like it acted as if there was some place I could stand where I wasn't complicit, like some innocent place I could stand and be philosophically against war, and that would mean that the wars had nothing to do with me. Um, but I, I began to be challenged by that, by writing this book and by thinking about photographs and realizing that um, I, I'm very complicit and that I have to uh, use my life to speak out against violence in, in ways that have concrete political effects. Like how? How am I now speaking out against yeah. violence? <laughs> yeah. um, well, it's interesting. I moved the day after the presidential election, this last one, and my deep apologies. Um, I moved uh, from Oregon to Idaho, and I live in a tiny town now. And in my town, um, we are the people who have are, are immigrants, whether they're new immigrants or whether they've lived there for 20 years without documents, are being um, pulled over for minor traffic violations and deported. And so I've been working with um, friends and neighbors to create um, a hotline and resources to support people in our community. And for me, that feels that that taking action that makes a difference to my friends and neighbors and people I don't know feels like um, pacifism in action. You once said, and I quote, photographs can capture more than the photo photographer intended. They're almost like religious objects for me. They're bigger than what was meant. Can you just mm. explain and talk a bit about that? Yes, I said that. That sounds pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I started, when I saw that, to that photograph of the hooded man, I changed my dissertation topic. I was writing on imagination and how imagination is necessary for social justice. You have to be able to imagine the world you want to create in order to bring it into being. Um, so I switched my dissertation topic. I told my advisor I, I want to write on these I want to write on these photographs, and he quit. <laughs> so I had to get a new advisor. I was like six years into my um, doctorate, which is really not fun to switch advisors at that point. Um, but I wanted to write about those photographs. So I started changing. I started training myself in visual culture. What I noticed is. A lot of the major thinkers that we think about who write about um, photographs use religious language to describe what they are. Um, Roland Barthes, Susan Sontag, John Berger, they all call them um, icons, that they think that they have something to do with resurrection, that they bring back the dead, which is kind of the feeling I have when I look at images. Mm. People that have already died, you feel like they're there in some way, even though you know they're not. Um, and so I became interested in what does it mean to think of these as religious objects. Um, and my thinking about them has changed. I read a book um, that really blew my mind called The Civil Contract of Photography by Ariella Azale. 
I mean, it's very, very big, but um, I wrote a short summary of it in The New Yorker, so you can read that if you don't want to read the whole book. Um, and she says that um, photographs have inaugurated a new kind of citizenship, that they make us accountable not to the powers that be or to the people that we sh live in shared borders with, but to anyone we see in a photograph who happens to be in pain, and that we are responsible um, for repairing what's been done to that person, even if they've already died. And I think that is um, one of the most powerful, challenging ways to think about what images are. I want to ask you two questions at once. Why did you want to be a priest, and then why did you not want to be a priest? <laughs> um, well, I wanted to be a priest um, because... I did this program right after college. I did this program called Teach for America, which takes recent college graduates and um, places them in underfunded, under-resourced public schools. And you taught in California. In California, in Compton, California. I hate Teach for America. I just want to make that clear. I think it's a colonial racist program, but I participated in it before I knew better. Um, and while I was doing that, I was encountering my own complicity in structural racism. I was a white 21-year-old in a school that was primarily African-American and Latino. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd been a comparative literature major. I had no skills to teach. I was teaching first and second grade, how to teach people how to read. Um, and I was just devastated by the systemic violence that I was seeing and recognizing that the system had been designed to help me and to hurt my students. And I started going to church, to an Episcopal church. My mother came to see me, and she was like, you need God, basically, is what she said. And she took me to this Episcopal church in South Pasadena, California, which was just incredible. It was doing same-sex unions you know, for decades. It was justice-oriented, marching for gun control. And I thought, oh, this is what religion can be. I want to be part of this. What can we find in your early biography that explains your mind being open to examining your own thinking and perhaps changing course? I mean, was this encouraged in the family? You, you said that your father happily took you to the priest to ask about the crucifixion. <laughs> yeah. Did he celebrate that? Did oh, he, he did. say, this is good to ask these questions? Yes, very much so. Uh, the only person who was surprised when I left Christianity was me. <laughs> My parents knew that that was what was going to happen, and they've always encouraged me to think critically and to change my mind. Why did you decide not to be a priest then? It was kind of a slow unraveling. It started with um, extreme experiences of sexism. Uh, in at, when I was working in a church, I um, my body wasn't welcome there. My politics weren't welcome there. I couldn't make my mind bend the way that the prayers were asking my mind to bend. I um, in breaking up with God, I think, or a church of her own, I write about. I stopped saying the words of the creed, the Nicene Creed, and by the end, I had eleven words left that were like God, God, light light. And that was like it, 11 words. Um, but the story I first told myself was that it was too sexist. I couldn't do it. Did you decide that Jesus was not the son of God then? I don't even know what that means. Um, for me, I think Jesus is the son of God in the way that every single human being has the ability to live their lives in a way that recognizes that everything they do is connected to everybody else and to try to make a more just and life-giving world. That's how I understand Jesus. How do you understand God? This, uh, are there cocktails for this? <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I ask the questions, I don't answer them. <laughs> um, well, now, I, I think, you know... I mean, the reason I... I'll just yes. give you a few moments to sort of think about it. <laughs> because we're talking about... It'll I mean, just Christ- take a couple minutes. Well, <laughs> Christianity to me has always meant that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth to save all humankind. Mankind is the old language, in all humankind. Um, and so that if you say, well, I believe that Jesus was a wonderful fellow, but that not you know that everybody might be the children of God or whatever, then you you wouldn't say, I am Christian, I am Christian, I believe in Christ. But that does that rob you then of a belief in some some higher, not a higher power, but some other meaning in life, mm. some other purpose in life? I don't think so. I, when people find out that I've left Christianity and if they're a people of faith, if they're Christian, they usually say, well, don't you miss the sense of something bigger than you? Mm. And I usually say, have you ever gone outside and looked at the sky? Stand it's, on Bologna. It's bigger. bigger <laughs> yeah, sky. look at the ocean and cry at Byron Bay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, for me, it's been replaced by the sense of the cosmos and mystery and... Um, a sense of humility that's not that's about like um, I can never say it right humus the soil what is it hummus <laughs> it's not hummus hummus humus. is what you eat this is what you stand um, on yeah <laughs> the idea that um, everything we do has impact that we cannot see and anticipate and so we must you know walk gently and for me that's it's my faith in the version of God that Christianity offered me has been um, replaced by a sense of um, creativity and life and um, responsibility. Mm. What, when we read this book, when I, the reason I said at the, in the introduction that it, it sort of made me stop is because it's not, it's not like any other book I've ever read, actually. It's a book full of paragraphs, and initially they seem not to be related to each other. I mean, they are related to each other, but then you get this beautiful flowing thread. And then I read the expression collage writing. Just tell me what that is. Um, well, I, I thought about it as a collage where I, I literally, the book took me 10 years to write, so I should just say that out. It, I'm very stubborn and I kept at it. I wrote it first as a novel and then um, I had what, a friend. As a novel? As a novel. About the violin? About, or about the violin, mm-hmm. about Miles, the soldier, and about uh, art critical theory professor who left religion. (laughs) Um, And I had a friend, I wrote it for about three years, and I had a friend who read it, and she said, this is terrible. Um, That's a good friend. And we're not friends anymore, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then I um, shattered shattered it into pieces to try to figure out what I had. Um, Literally or figuring? Literally. How do you mean? I, I... I took all of the pieces of the novel and put them in little paragraphs in my computer, and then I printed them out and cut them up. Really? Yes. Cut them up, so one little paragraph, two little paragraphs, like yes, that? Yes, yes. And I did that probably what? about 70 times. Oh. I took I took a workshop. I told you I'm stubborn. I took a workshop with a writer named Nick Flynn, um, who's a brilliant writer, and he taught us this method. He taught us a lot of generative writing prompts, and then he taught us this method of taking what you've written, cutting it up, laying out, I'm giving you a writing workshop right now, 20 blank pieces of paper, arranging your fragments into piles by theme, and then um, laying out the pieces 
on the 20 blank pieces of paper with a little bit of scotch tape. And then he would make you retype in what you had taped down so that you could recommit to every word. So in this case, you, you might you might have two lines mm-hmm. and it's just a thought. Yes. And then in the next might be a, a page and a half yes. um, with an anecdote mm-hmm. and then a, a thought about something else. It's it, Yes. Yeah. I wanted it to work. Um, I saw this um, image from an exhibition by an artist named Fred Wilson who uh, did an exhibit called Mining the Museum in Baltimore. And he they gave him access to the entire exhibit at the museum and said he could rearrange it. And he used juxtaposition to make these arguments about racism and colonialism and how knowledge is constructed. And one of the images I saw from the exhibit was... Um, this big display case, and it had all this fancy silver, like sugar bowls and goblets, and then it had um, slave manacles, and it was just called Metalwork 1865. And I thought, well, that makes visible the violence of enslaving people and its connection to wealth and how wealth is oppressive in a way that you could not do um, by just having the manacles or just having this the sugar bowl. And I thought, I want my book to work like that. Okay. One person we haven't spoken about is Miles. Who was Miles? Who is Miles? Um, Miles is um, a student that I had when I was teaching in California. I was writing my dissertation on the Abu Ghraib photographs. And I came into my class one day when I was teaching about the Abu Ghraib photographs. And two students were in the room early. And the woman was like elbowing him, tell her, tell her, tell her. And he didn't want to. Um, and then it turned out he'd been stationed at Abu Ghraib prison. Um, he was a veteran. And I said to him, if you ever want to talk to me about what you experienced there, I'd be happy to listen. He says, I said, you come talk to me. <laughs> but that's not really my style. But it might have been how he felt. So he came and he just started coming to my office hours and telling me um, what happened to him and what he did during war. It was just horrific. What did he do? Um, he he didn't do much, but he witnessed things, terrible things being done. Like people with hoods on their heads? Um, like people, no, not that, but he, he would say things like, oh, I taught kids how to play chess. I would say, kids? What do you mean kids? And he was guarding kids and old men, and he was running a school. He would show up, they would teach them school, and he would learn how to play chess with people, and they were kept in cages outside. Um, Had he spoken about this to anybody before? He'd been back for two years, and I was the first person to ask him about his time at war. Do you think he suffered from some kind of PTSD? I do, I do. He would tell me things that were terrible that he'd seen, and it would be as if he was describing, you know, sweeping the floor. It was no affect. And what about now? What's he doing now? Well, um, when I... He's a, he's an amazing human being, and he's he's also when I met him, he's a painter. He was painting portraits of detainees that he had guarded. Um, so that was the only way that he shared his story was through art by painting. Um, and now he's being trained to be a kindergarten art teacher, and he's he's married. He has two kids, and um, the highest compliment I actually got about Dryer Weapons, I sent him a copy uh, in manuscript form so he could read it and see if there if I got anything wrong. And he shared it with his wife, and he's very relaxed. I was like, well, what did you think about it? And he's like, yeah, it's good. It's like, I just spent 10 years writing about you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but he said, um, 
my wife read it and she said she'd never heard these stories before and that she learned about me and my time at war and she really liked it. Goodness me. One or two more questions from me. We talk about drones, please, because you've written about drones. Yeah, I'm obsessed with drones, um, militarized drones in particular, these flying machines with cameras that kill people based on what people think they see. I've, I've studied photography for 15 years, and if I've learned anything, it's that images cannot be trusted, that they can be manipulated and falsified, and that our lenses are always warped by our biases. And um, so this idea that you can shoot based on the gun is really troubling to me. Or shoot based on the gun is not what I mean. Shoot based on an image projected to you in Las Vegas somewhere. And then I also started thinking about God, uh, about drones as little gods flying in the sky. Uh, they are omniscient, omnipotent, and they deal out death to those deemed sinners below, you know, people doing something wrong. Um, so that's been um, troubling to me. But I think that this notion of um, God as this unknowable other that troubles any kind of certainty that we think we have, I think we can use that against um, drones to suggest, um, as one of my mentors, Gordon Kaufman, used to say, the most ethical thing you can say is I might be wrong. For me, that is um, like the ultimate anti-war sentence. Mm -hmm. Got four minutes. Would you like to do a quick something? What about that one we discussed? Okay. Okay. Sure. We talked about this. You know, will we do a read? Will Sarah do a reading or not? And then we decided we. I think we're picking it up with the story of Miles. Yes. Um. So I think you know everything you need to know. Miles is a is the soldier. Miles was supposed to be a cook. That's what that was what they'd trained him to do: prepare food, assemble meals for soldiers to eat. But that work was outsourced to private corporations, so they made him a guard at the prison instead. He drank his coffee in the medical tent every morning in Iraq and watched the detainees get shots. Vaccines for tetanus, measles, mumps, rubella. Most of the prisoners were scared. They didn't understand what the shots were for. And sometimes Miles smiled at them to try to make them feel comfortable. And sometimes they smiled back. And sometimes he teased them, told them the shots were poison, put his hands around his throat like he was choking, like he couldn't breathe. Some of the prisoners were so afraid of the needles that they'd pass out, and everyone in the medical tent, including the other prisoners standing in line, would laugh. Some governments build elaborate torture chambers. The House of Fun was designed by a British firm that advertised the setup as prisoner disorientation equipment. Installed in Dubai Special Branch Headquarters, it was outfitted with strobe lights and white noise machines and took on the appearance of a disco, but the sound that could be generated inside that space was so loud, it was capable of reducing the victim to submission within half an hour. Miles told me he didn't decide to go to war because he supported the war. He didn't think there were weapons of mass destruction. He went to war because he wanted to go to college and joining the military seemed like the best way to pay for it. And that was true for most of the soldiers he knew. Their reasons were pragmatic. And once they found themselves in theater, they did their jobs, and they did them well. Because if they didn't, they'd die, or their friends would die, 
or the people next to them would die. And the war became about protecting each other, about being willing to die for one another. When you're there, he said, all you want to do is protect your buddies. Miles told me I was the first person who'd asked about his experience in Iraq. He'd been back for more than two years. I think that's a pretty good note on which to end. Would you please join me in thanking Sarah Centillas? Thank you so much, Margaret. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.